You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 41, Tea Party Aftermath. Last week I ended with the Sons of Liberty dumping three shiploads of tea into Boston Harbor. The immediate reaction to the Tea Party was mixed. And I guess first I should point out that no one called it the Tea Party at the time. At the time, references simply called it the events in Boston or the destruction of the tea. The catchy name came decades later. Also, none of the men involved in the destruction wanted to be identified. For years, the identities of participants remained a secret. The men had committed a crime and destroyed property. Even after independence, the East India Company could have brought suit for damages. Decades later, people have tried to put together lists based on the recollections of some very old men in the early 1800s who claimed to have participated. A few names stand out, like Ebenezer McIntosh, William Molyneux, and Paul Revere. Most of the men were minor merchants and craftsmen, not political leaders. Radical leaders like Thomas Cushing, John Hancock, Joseph Warren, Samuel and John Adams stayed far away from the event and made sure they had alibis. No one wanted to be the fall guy for this. Governor Hutchinson, who should have been used to mob activity in Boston, seemed genuinely shocked by the night's events. He had left town several weeks earlier, probably to avoid harassment, and had not seen firsthand the emotional build-up to the final night of destruction. The next day, he tried to convene a meeting of the council, but could not get a quorum. Finally, getting a quorum the following week, the council met in Cambridge, where the governor called the attack an act of high treason. Later, after getting better legal advice, they had to define it as an act of burglary. Still, they could never identify any of the perpetrators. One man was arrested, but had to be released for lack of evidence. Even the Tories knew the consequences of snitching would not be good. Anyone who knew anything kept his mouth shut. Governor Hutchinson had to spend the next few weeks writing letters to officials and colleagues in London trying to explain why he could not prevent the events nor find anyone to punish. Colonists in other towns seemed to support the actions in Boston. Paul Revere rode to New York to give the Sons of Liberty there an account of what happened. Other messengers carried the story to Philadelphia a few days later. Unlike the Stamp Act riots or other earlier mob actions, many people throughout the colonies did not strongly condemn the events in Boston. The raid on the tea ships was not a reckless act of lawlessness. The men involved destroyed only the tea, protecting other property. They also made sure the tea was destroyed, not stolen. The attack came only after all other attempts to return the tea peacefully had been exhausted. The colonies had remained peaceful for several years as they petitioned London to repeal the Townsend duties. 
they had even tolerated the importation of duty tea as they worked toward repeal through lawful means. Now the peace and tolerance had come to an end. Lord North had brought on the showdown in order to compel the colonies to resist or comply once and for all. They had chosen resistance. Debate and discussion over the destruction of the tea seemed fairly unified. Colonists seemed to have reached the consensus that the towns and duties were illegal and that resistance was justified. If many in the colonies disagreed with that consensus, they mostly decided to remain silent. Now last week I talked about the ships arriving in Boston, but of course ships were also headed for Charleston, Philadelphia, and New York. Word had not reached Charleston by December 22nd. The ship London had reached port in Charleston on December 2nd with 257 chests of tea. After those 20 days, officials seized and offloaded the tea to be held by customs officials. A few months later, the East India Tea Company sent a request that it be sold at auction, but officials wisely ignored the request. The tea sat in storage for about two years. By some accounts, the tea was eventually found to be damaged and unsellable. Other accounts say that the Patriot legislature that took control in 1775 sold the tea, without taxes of course, to raise money for the Patriot cause. Philadelphia had heard about Boston when the ship Polly was spotted in the Delaware River with 598 chests of tea aboard. Since the consignees had already resigned, a group met with the captain before he reached port, warning him not to enter. The captain left his ship at anchor in the Delaware River and went into town to confer with the consignees and others. After two days, he returned to his ship, turned it around, and sailed back to England. Now, technically, his ship had been within the customs district controlled by Philadelphia. Governor Penn, however, wisely chose to ignore the fact that the ship had turned around without filing any papers. The Nancy was the last of the ships to arrive. A storm blew the ship off course, causing it to land in Antigua in February 1774. There, the captain learned about the fate of the other ships. Nevertheless, he headed to New York with his 698 chests of tea. He anchored his ship outside of the harbor, beyond the reach of customs officers, and went ashore to confer with the locals. The consignees, who had already resigned, told him he was best off staying away. So, like the Polly in Philadelphia, the Nancy turned around and returned to London with its tea still on board. Now, there was actually some tea from these shipments that did make it to market. Remember the William, the fourth ship that ran aground on its way to Boston? Well, Jonathan Clark left Castle William riding to Provincetown to examine the wreck. He was able to extract the ship's 58 chests of tea and hired a fishing vessel to bring them back to Castle William. It's unclear what happened to all of the chests, but he sold at least two of them to a local justice of the peace in Provincetown. The remainder may have been smuggled out for sale at some point, but there are no records of exactly what happened to it. Fear that the tea might find its way to market probably contributed to the anti-tea hysteria that swept the colonies over the next few months. Originally, radicals had objected only to the tea tax. As time went on, opposition grew to all tea, even smuggled tea from Holland. Radicals confiscated tea from anyone selling or even possessing the leaf. They called on patriotic citizens to burn their tea and not buy any more of it. The justification against Dutch tea 
was that it was impossible to differentiate it from British tea that had the duties paid on it. Prior to the tea party, some merchants who had purchased tea in London were selling it, claiming it was smuggled Dutch tea. The only way to block all tea imports was to stop the sale and drinking of all tea altogether. Communities all over New England held tea burnings. Vigilantes raided stores and taverns accused of having or selling tea. They destroyed property and forced owners to sign agreements not to buy any more tea from anywhere. Newspapers started publishing absurd articles that condemned tea drinking for a variety of reasons completely unrelated to taxation. Tea was really a poisonous herb. Tea contributed to the flea problem in America. Tea was packed in China by women stamping down the tea with their dirty feet. More commonly, we see the argument that tea is a luxury. Its use was making Americans soft and dependent on outsiders. Some tea-addicted parents were buying tea while their children did not have enough to eat. Tea became the reefer madness of its day. Although the East India Company never tried to send any more tea directly after the first seven ships failed, other merchants continued to bring tea, unaware of the anti-tea sentiment sweeping the colonies. Many of these were private chests of tea purchased at auction in London, as they had been for years without issue. When the ship Fortune arrived in Boston Harbor in March 1774 with 28 and a half chests aboard, it got caught in the same predicament faced by the earlier ships. Boston radicals would not allow the tea to be unloaded and customs officials would not allow it to leave without paying the duties. A few days later, events repeated themselves as a band of men disguised as Indians boarded the vessel and dumped the tea into the harbor once again. In April, the ship London arrived in New York with 18 quarter chests of tea for private sale. Local activists dumped this tea into New York Harbor and forced the captain to abandon his ship and flee the scene. Similar events to bring tea into Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Greenwich, New Jersey, York, Virginia, and several other towns led to tea either being destroyed or forcibly removed from the colony for transport elsewhere. In Annapolis, Maryland, a merchant imported and paid the duty on a few chests, only to face a mob which forced him to burn both the tea and the ship that imported it. The issue of tea had finally unified colonial opposition in a way that nothing else had since the stamp tax a decade earlier. If Lord North in London had decided to set a precedent by forcing colonists to pay the tax, it completely backfired. The precedent was set that no matter how small the tax, colonists would not tolerate any attempts to raise revenue without their consent. In London, Lord Dartmouth, the Secretary for Colonial Affairs, had been caught completely off guard by all of this. Lord North had not even bothered to inform his brother of the plan to ship the East India tea to the colonies. So when Dartmouth started receiving word back from the governors about all the problems, he was completely blindsided. Despite the lack of notice, and despite the fact that Dartmouth had tried to be pretty accommodating as secretary, the mass destruction of property and lawlessness had to be stopped. By early January 1774, Dartmouth wrote to Governor Tryon and General Haldimand in New York, authorizing them to use troops to protect commerce and prevent mob action if necessary. 
A few weeks later, the first word of the tea dump in Boston reached London. And a few days after that, the Polly reached London with her tea still on board. And still a few days after that, word of Charleston's tea impoundment arrived. Quickly, it became clear that the colonies presented a continent-wide resistance to the tea plan. The East India Company met with officials to see what could be done. The company's primary concern was compensation for the lost tea in Boston. It was also able to recover the tea on the Polly that had returned from Philadelphia. Although under the law officials should have seized the tea, they did let the company get it back. The company then issued orders that any refused tea in the future should be sent to Halifax, where there was no objection. From there, many moderates figured inventive merchants and traders would find a way to move the tea south to consumers who still wanted their tea. Beginning in late January and into February, officials in London met to discuss how to handle the problem in the colonies. Although many colonies had resisted, officials focused on Boston as the center of the problem. They agreed that the government had to issue a firm response and that Boston had to suffer for its actions. Even at the initial meetings, Dartmouth proposed shutting down the Customs House in Boston and moving the colony's capital far from the city. Further measures must secure the dependence of the colonies on Britain. The Attorney General issued an opinion that the events in Boston constituted high treason, levying war against His Majesty. Lord North discussed the idea of ordering the Navy to block all commerce in and out of Boston Harbor effectively closing the harbor to all commercial activity. King George III was a part of these discussions and supported the idea of punitive actions against Boston. Many in the colony still held to the fiction that they could be loyal to their benevolent king and that they just needed to convince him that his parliament and ministry were out of control. But the fact was King George was in full agreement with everything his government was doing. British anger at colonial resistance was not limited to the government either. Public opinion seemed to be in favor of teaching the colonies a lesson. Newspapers blamed colonial misbehavior on leniency, starting with the repeal of the Stamp Act. British desire to keep its colonies happy was being mistaken for weakness. Now the colonies thought they could simply do whatever they wanted without any repercussions. Everyone in England seemed to think Britain needed a firm response to show them who was boss. General Gage, recently returned from America, agreed. He said the colonists acted like lions because the British behaved like lambs. If the British finally took tough actions, the colonists would have to back down. On February 19th, Francis Roch, owner of the Dartmouth, and several other men from Boston gave testimony to the Privy Council regarding the events of November and December. Even that far removed from Boston, the witnesses refused to name names and spoke only of the events generally. A frustrated attorney general decided it would be impossible to indict any individuals for treason or much of anything else. Although the ministry could have taken many of the punitive measures without turning to Parliament, they decided to put the measures before Parliament in a bill. Although this might delay the response by a few weeks, it ensured that all of Parliament was aware of the government's response and that a majority approved of it. As much as radicals in Boston argued that the destruction of tea was the result of Indians, or more plausibly that of a few bad apples, 
which did not justify punishment of the entire town, London thought otherwise. Testimony about the destruction of Clark's store, the illegal town meetings, and numerous other events convinced officials that all of Boston was out of control. Now, I'm going to get into all the details about the legislative changes next week, but before we do that, I want to address one more issue today that was happening at the same time. In the middle of all this rancor over tea, Benjamin Franklin felt the wrath of London's fury due to an unrelated matter. Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago, back in episode 37, Benjamin Franklin sent a packet of letters to the radicals back in Boston. These were confidential letters from Governor Hutchinson to members of the London establishment talking about the need to curtail some colonial liberties if they ever wanted to restore order in the colony. Although Franklin had requested the letters be kept confidential, the radicals published them in the newspaper, resulting in a spike in colonial outrage against Hutchinson. When those letters became public, the radical leaders in Massachusetts used them as part of a petition calling for the removal of Governor Hutchinson and Lieutenant Governor Oliver. During the fall of 1773, officials tried to figure out who had sent those letters to the colonies. Two officials in London accused each other of sending the letters, and they ended up in a duel in which neither man was killed. After hearing that they planned to have a second duel, Franklin stepped up by writing a letter to the London Chronicle admitting that he had sent the letters. A few weeks later, in January 1774, Franklin appeared before the Privy Council to discuss the petition to remove Hutchinson. After some questioning, it became clear that the meeting was not so much about removing the governor, but whether Franklin had committed a crime by releasing those letters. Franklin decided he needed to lawyer up and ended his testimony until he could consult with counsel. He told the members that he needed about three weeks to prepare his case. The timing could not have been worse. In those three weeks, news of the Boston Tea Party and other acts of resistance rolled into London, putting everyone in a violently anti-colonial state. Up until this time, Franklin had actually expressed views similar to most Londoners. He condemned the violence in Boston, along with the destruction of private property. He argued that the East India Company was not the enemy of the colonies and should not be treated as such. Even so, London newspapers raged at his behavior for releasing the private letters and cooperating with the radicals in Boston. Franklin even had to remove his name from the group still trying to get approval for the Vandalia colony, fearing that his tarnished name would now potentially harm the group's chances. Franklin returned to the Privy Council on January 29, 1774. A packed house viewed the proceedings as a showdown. Even Lord Hillsborough showed up in the audience to watch his enemy Franklin get his comeuppance. Lord North arrived late and had to stand. The Solicitor General, Lord Wedderburn, gave a lengthy diatribe for over an hour condemning Franklin's violation of privacy in releasing those private letters. Wedderburn then attempted to call Franklin as a witness. Franklin declined, citing his right against self-incrimination. Wedderburn then continued to heap abuse on the silent Franklin, who stood quietly in front of the crowd without betraying any emotion at the humiliating treatment. Finally, the council got to the point of the meeting and rejected the petition to remove Governor Hutchinson. 
The following day, Franklin received notice that he had been fired as Postmaster General of North America. He spent a few days in hiding, fearing that he might be arrested. Eventually, he returned to his London home and began to receive visitors. Still, his effectiveness as a lobbyist for the colonies in London was over. Franklin remained in London for another year, hoping to restore his reputation. That did not happen, though, and in 1775, he packed his bags and returned to Pennsylvania. Before these events, Franklin was not terribly closely associated with the Patriot cause. He had tried to remain neutral. Following the attack and the destruction of his reputation in London, Franklin became a committed Patriot. Next week, Parliament passes the Coercive Acts, putting Britain and her colonies on the path to war. <laughs>